Hello and welcome back to our fourth podcast. I was going to say lecture, fourth podcast <laughs> in the female-specific nutrition series. So this is everything to do with some topics we are going to be touching on in our female-specific nutrition course. If you haven't seen that, check out our Instagrams, AWPT University, Coach Needham Fit and Kayla Lee Physio. I have Amy back on with us for podcast four. She's in Singapore, so we're doing this remote <laughs> this week. We were just talking before we jumped on about the bidet. She loves the bidet. Yeah, it's definitely a new experience. I've never felt my bum so clean. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. When I was in Japan, I just could not stand the bidet. I was like, I was just jumping off the toilet. I was like, oh, it tickles. Like, what the hell? It's so weird. But uh, it is, uh, I guess, relevant because I was just telling Amy as well, we created a new offer for you guys. Like, if you do need an extended payment plan, we do have some more payment plans available as well for you if you want to jump in this course because, you know, we want it to be accessible. We want this to be accessible to as many people as possible without devaluing like the information in the course because there is so much. Anyway, I was creating this offer and the URL had P00 at the end and it just seems so relevant because it's something that we do discuss in the course, we do talk about. Maybe we talk about it a little bit more next week on our podcast where We'll be talking a little bit more about the performance side of nutrition, but today what we wanted to focus on was more like what can go wrong in terms of like female health. And the biggest thing, obviously, we know the menstrual cycle has a huge impact on our hormones, on how we function and our ultimate like overall health. So if any of you guys have done AWPT, we did dive into the menstrual cycle. We dived into menstrual cycle dysfunction briefly, but this course is going to go a whole lot deeper into it. So we are going to be talking about PCOS, endo, hypothalamic amenorrhea, and probably a few other bits and bobs today. If your client is suffering from these things, they are quite common. Amy and I were just looking up the statistics before and, you know, it's huge and it's also really scary. And nutrition has, you can have such a, an impact, like we were saying last week as a coach, by just finding like the low hanging fruits in terms of like your training and nutrition. So Ains, did you want to start with PCOS, endo or amenorrhea? Yeah, like I think even just an overview, like I think you would be hard pressed to find a client that doesn't either have endo, PCOS, is either on contraception, which also is a... Um, I guess it's mm. chemical castration, but it's also going to have an influence on not having a cycle as a female as well. Um, perimenopause, postmenopause, um, and even looking at other, I guess, health consequences like secondary amenorrhea or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea. And I guess being able to distinguish them um, to be able to, because the treatment is, is so different. Say, for example, if someone with functional HA, they need more carbohydrates. They need to nourish the nervous system. Whereas if it's say insulin resistant PCOS, like overall caloric balance, weight loss, yes, is key, but so is managing their carbohydrate and their blood sugar as well. So the way you would treat them are two very different things. And unfortunately, um, there's a lot of misdiagnosis going on. Um, and I do know that the medical system is definitely um, stressed. Uh, like it has quite a lot of load at the moment trying to handle 
pandemic and everything else going on that it's really hard to get that level of care so understanding I guess different health issues or female health aspects being able to help different clients that you're going to come across like I, mm. I highly doubt there's a you might have one like natural cycle female who has zero issues with digestion or zero issues with their cycle or they even if they don't think they do if they think having a low libido is normal having um skipping their period is potentially normal or um that they're just having a lighter menses as well and it's quite light and they're like oh my cycle has always been good it's quite light and i don't get it which is again like it's still a, a that's a health marker it just might seem a little bit more pleasant in that way so being able to distinguish them is really helpful, but also being able to know nutritionally how to help. Yeah, a hundred percent. And I think as well, like we, you know, we, we spoke about last week, what is in the scope of a coach and, you know, like we're not diagnosing anything here, but your client may have been misdiagnosed. So I think it's really important to know these things as well, because you can be that second point of reference, right? Like if somebody gives you a diagnosis, sometimes, not always, you will go and get like a second opinion. But that second opinion could potentially come from you as well. Like I can relate this to a client I had when her doctor told her when she was pregnant not to lift any heavier than five kilos. And she was fit and she was healthy and you know, she was going to put on more than five kilos throughout her pregnancy. And so we wanted, and she even wanted this as well. She wanted to keep her strength. She wanted to have an active pregnancy. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, sometimes the clients are going to do what the doctor says. But I think the fact that she felt in herself, she was like, I feel fine. Like, I know I can do this. She came to me, like I said, look, you are totally fine to do this. Um you know, sometimes then she had a lot of pressure from her doctor and her husband um, saying that, you know, it wasn't safe to do this. And it is like I've been, been speaking about on social media a lot, like some of this information and some of this research that we're presenting in these courses, like whether it's AWPT or female specific nutrition, the research is very new. It's very new and it takes like 15 to 20 years for research to become common knowledge. And so that's what we're trying to do here is to bridge that gap because there are so many people that we can help in the meantime. So no, we're not diagnosing as coaches, but we can suggest to our clients that they do get a second opinion, opinion, sorry, and building a, a referral network is mm. probably the biggest thing is like having people that you can trust to, to speak to as well. Someone like Amy. So yeah, and I think um, just statistics that we we're looking at before, so endo being about 10% of reproductive age women globally are affected, uh, PCOS 6 to 20%, but you're also looking at the percentage that, say, 15 to 20% of them may be infertile, and I guess looking then at the instance of uh, insulin-resistant PCOS, um, and, you know, they're more likely, three times more likely, actually, to uh, suffer from thyroid disease. So things like Hashimoto's, like it's already affecting the rest of the system as well. So just because they're diagnosed in one area doesn't mean there's not something underlying. Um, and obviously there's worse if there's like obesity involved as well. But even 46% of recreational female athletes experience low energy availability. So the... Uh, the optimal amount of energy we need to perform our daily tasks as well as our training when that is decreased and we have what's called low energy availability so that optimal amount isn't there we do start to see uh, changes in our 
reproductive health, in our digestive health, um, in our mental health as well. And physically, we just can't perform as well. So it's knowing, I guess, the amount which is a, is going to be optimal for our body. So I think people have uh, even an issue, I guess, knowing like, well, I just need to eat less. But if you're eating less results in shrinking your organs or decreasing your reproductive health, which again, from your menstrual cycle can actually be something which optimizes fat loss and performance and training if used if knowledge around it is used correctly, then you're kind of shutting off something that could be enhancing your ability to reach your goals and also improve your training performance and your fat loss. So um, I think there's definitely a tipping point where there's a decrease in your body's optimal health that is actually doing a disservice to your goals as well. So I guess knowing that statistics of how many people are affected, not to mention how many people are probably on oral contraceptive pills and the vast variety of contraceptive forms that affect female health as well um, you really do need to be across the board on all of it even if you don't you're not diagnosing you might suggest they go and you know follow your referral network to look further um, if things don't quite add up but the way somebody trains the way they eat which things you're you're influencing and they trust you with you need to you need to be aware of, of what's going to work and what's not mm, yeah you put up a great point just there so we have spoken a lot about PCOS, hypothalamic amenorrhea, endo. Let's quickly first go and define them. So I think the big ones will be defining the differences between PCOS and hypothalamic amenorrhea. And then endo is kind of like in its own little ballpark by itself. Um, and then next, on our next week's podcast, let's talk about optimizing performance. So we'll talk about, you know, how you can optimize uh, the health, but also like fat loss and things like that for your clients. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of, you know, conducting initial, we also spoke about that in a previous podcast as well. So if you haven't yet listened to that, go back and listen to um, our initial our podcast on conducting an, an initial consultation because asking the right questions is going to be super important. But then also knowing what to do with the information mm-hmm. is really important. Yeah, so I guess um, the difference when you're looking at HA and PCOS, one big one that I knew was a key was like the AMH level or egg count level. So someone with AMH wouldn't necessarily, someone with PCOS may have an AMH reading or egg count above, say, 22. um, And that's kind of like a high amount above 22, 25. Um, But you can also have things like subclinical PCOS. So it could be hyperandrogenic. Genism, um, where it's not necessarily that they're getting cysts, you can also have someone with cysts without necessarily the syndrome. Um, the way that your ovaries look one month can bleed and look completely different the next month. So I guess it's knowing there's different caveats to it. So the androgen levels, um, any hirsutism or unwanted hair growth and hair loss, and um, obviously your scans that you're doing um, and irregular cycles. So you can have a mix of those things, but that doesn't necessarily diagnose someone with PCOS, which again is just a collection of symptoms. Um, someone I'd normally see who has more HA or functional hypothalamic amenorrhea and generally secondary amenorrhea are more likely to have low states of energy availability and they're more likely to be cold they're more likely to probably have dry skin compared to someone with PCOS being quite high sebum production from androgens Um, I would also see maybe both would still have maybe hair loss um, in different kind of ways Um, in functional HA I'd normally see higher strong people so say more type A personality a little bit more nervousness and anxiety whereas you might see more ballsiness and higher testosterone kind of things in someone with PCOS um, 
and <laughs> your yeah. So That's I guess so interesting. No, because like the psychology part of it is friggin' fascinating. Mm-hmm. Like you're saying, say low libido, yeah, like yeah. low libido in HA, whereas high libido in someone with PCOS. So. Um, like I guess asking the right questions help you define that too even if you're not testing bloods and even if you're not looking at scans or anything like that too so um, a good way to know this is more for the guys if they go out and a girl has long arm hair or a high hand androgen status they probably have a high libido so that's how you pick uh, up those ones so it's more attractive in that case or oh <laughs> uh, it just means that maybe a little bit easier <laughs> all right <laughs> um, maybe we'll but- go there maybe we won't maybe we won't go there but um yeah like even your androgen status or having hyperandrogenism as well like um then like you can have subclinical it doesn't mean it's pcos you could just have a higher level like we all exist on a spectrum that doesn't mean you're diagnosed or uh, defined as something um Mm. and obviously knowing the correct kind of protocols to help alleviate symptoms even if it is a diagnosis um but say someone with HA they might have low energy during training someone PCOS might feel be a lot stronger like PCOS women actually perform really well in athletics and they generally have like narrow hips so in sport they actually do really well in certain sports that require you know narrow hip wider broad shoulders so um HA wise I would be looking more I guess like I mean both would sometimes depending on um how far into energy or low energy availability they might have more abdominal fat um but you would look at muscle wastage maybe in fha versus like more muscle building in pcos um and yeah semen production how oily their skin is um how i guess other estrogen markers like do they carry in their lower body um or is it more central adiposity um and yeah, not normally from a psychology standpoint, you are looking at more nervousness in uh, HA and where's your, because which is why type A personality and even from a um, cortisol impact, you can get it without necessarily having low energy availability or without necessarily overtraining or under And that, I think that's the biggest, like you're looking for HA, you're looking at more like, yeah, how much training you're doing, how, what your nutrition is, but also things like your sleep. Like what are you under sleeping? Do you not have a lack of recovery? Are you a type A personality as well? So there's so mm. many caveats to it. And I think um, things that people don't necessarily know. So blood sugar management affecting our re- reproductive health as well, which is why I did a post on you need to have meals every three to four hours, make sure they're balanced. Yes, those macronutrient percentages can alter a little around training, but they still need to be present. Um, women are not men essentially so um, what may work for a man from a sports nutrition aspect won't work for a female so what are your thoughts on intermittent fasting for females um okay so in men and the studies that have done I guess on fasting is normally overweight people um and for men fasting can be more of a stress relief and parasympathetic state but in women it's actually a sympathetic state so being that we're potentially more we have more hormones in play and we are more sensitive to cortisol in some areas and we, we can just fuck ourselves up a little bit easier. Being in the sympathetic state for a longer period of time is creating more dysregulation in the HPA axis, whereas for men it can actually be health-promoting. For women it's kind of health-restricting. Um, so, yeah, no, not something I normally would encourage. 
Yeah, and again, like it's probably more likely those type A's who are probably opting for something like intermittent fasting as well. So it's like a stress on top of a stress, on top of a stress. Yeah, Yeah. Uh, I was speaking to one of my clients. So from a blood sugar management perspective as well, so we were speaking before of how it influences your reproductive health. If your body is utilising a lot of its stored glycogen to mobilise in the times of fasting, then when it does get that, I guess that is still like cortisol is used to mobilize glycogen, right? Like to get a fuel source, like to fuel utilization. Now, when that cortisol has been used consistently and you're utilizing all your blood sugar, then when you actually get a, a meal or your stored glucose or glycogen, I should say, then the first thing your body wants to do is restore it. Like you're not going to get energy after that, which is why people say, you know, fasting, I feel like I have a lot more energy. You don't, you're mobilizing a lot of stored glucose and energy. However, when you're, I guess, feeding after that restricted window like it's not necessarily you're going to utilize it your body's going to want to you know replenish its glycogen stores as well so it's like being so stressed and they say they get tired after they eat it's like being so stressed and then your body having the opportunity to rest and nourish its nervous system it it wants to rest it's going to tell you to rest so that's why you get kind of those downs after fasting um is that your body actually is like holy shit like we've just done finish whatever the tiger chasing us or whatever sympathetic state I guess you want to relate it to and then by the time that ends your body just wants to recover and rest Mm. yeah that's super interesting and so like how does that play into like management of PCOS so like you've probably heard or like you know I'm talking to like everyone who's listening like you've heard like go low carb for PCOS but like what type of PCOS, like which type do you have? Like what's going to be the better strategy? I think as well as like it is kind of outdated data, like the overall consensus on PCOS is not about carbohydrate or macronutrient makeup. It's more about body fat percentage. So your insulin resistance and your leptin resistance coming from overall uh, adiposity. So obviously weight loss, especially insulin resistant PCOS is always going to be the most overarching beneficial thing you can do. Now, if somebody restricting their carbohydrates and going say low carb and they're living in an environment which isn't conducive to that whatsoever and they feel restricted that's another stressor on their body if if pcos is already a stressor on their nervous system and then they're adding in another form of restriction which restriction will only predispose someone to want to overeat and binge later then it's kind of pointless like i it's very outdated data i think it's like looking at blood sugar issue carbohydrate like you know like it doesn't take a scientist to be like oh my gosh it must be the sugar um whereas realistically when you're looking from an insulin resistance standpoint it's just adiposity so that adiposity affecting our liver and our blood sugar management so overall weight loss is obviously going to work however from a blood sugar management standpoint it's not about carbohydrate presence is the presence of carbohydrates with something like protein and fat to slow down the glucose release and helping for a more blood sugar stable environment stable yeah like we've got to remember like we have so many systems at play here so like we have like the hormonal system the nervous system like our physical system like there is so like there is no system that exists in isolation so you know like you said before is taking carbohydrates away going to add extra stress like that's the psychological component to it as well so it's super interesting and you know treating like your clients like there's no protocol right it's like treating your clients like as they are and as they come to you like what do they believe what are their 
uh, experiences, like it's just finding the right, it's like using the right tools, basically. Like as a coach, you should be building your tool belt so that you have these tools to use in any situation. Like people will, I always just relate it back to like the physio realm. It's like people will bag the foam roller or they'll bag like some kind of device or whatever it is or like manipulations for example like cars like oh like it's just a a short term no like these are actually like just tools that help us Mm. um get the best results for our client and it's going to depend on your client which tools you're going to use so building your toolbox is like huge Mm. And as much as I say, like weight loss being like biggest for PCOS, it is, but it is also conditions like endo PCOS or HA and things like that. Macronutrient makeup is also important. So um, yeah, isochloric for say someone who is more PCOS based, but it's also having lower GI serves of carbohydrates. It's not complete throwing out carbohydrates. It's choosing smarter choices. Um, Mm. Whereas someone would say, hey, hey, the biggest two things we actually want to restore is leptin and insulin, right? So that is a carbohydrate derivative. So yes, eat more high GI carbs, like if you're trying to recover your cycle, whereas maybe not for someone who is insulin resistant PCOS. Yeah. And so I guess like as well, throwing the pill into all of that, like you can have post-pill PCOS. <laughs> yeah. As well. you, you definitely can. And knowing that like um, majority of, the use of so the contraceptive pill was created obviously for contraception however 58 percent of the use is actually used for non-contraceptive reasons like my skin or or whatever it is Um, but the makeup of synthetic estrogen is pretty standard in in all forms um, of hormonal contraception however the progestin type is what what changes so um, it's knowing I guess the effect of different synthetic progestins and uh, synthetic estrogens on the body as well and knowing that it is more of a predisposition to insulin resistance and that the body isn't going to function the same way that we would with say natural or um, estrogen or natural progesterone so um we won't ever really know the full effects of different hormonal contraceptions until like, you know, like you said, 15 to 20 years down the, down the line. The only reason we know more about uh, contraception or the oral contraceptive pills impact on our health is because it's newer than say the Marina IED, copper, stuff like that. So um, unfortunately we are kind of guinea pigs in that. Um, and I think the lack of awareness around something like symptothermal method and knowing how to track your cycle and how to know your fertile windows um, and utilize knowledge with action as like power. Um, I think that's definitely something that it's, we like band-aids in society. And unfortunately those band-aids, especially if it's messing with something like the female menstrual cycle, which is so important for our health and also for just like, you know, our bone health, our cardiovascular health, our mental health, um, Mm. and also our training performance as well. Like it's just, um, it's a bit of a shitstorm when you try and fuck with it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is also new and we don't know <laughs> right now. Yeah, like we can take experience. That one, one female's experience on something will be completely different to something else because we are not all made the same. They're not like female in like a production line that are just like, here you go, here's your estrogen, here's your progesterone. Like, you know, here's a little mm. testosterone for you. Oh, you get a little bit more. Like, you know, everyone's going to be like a unique chemical shitstorm makeup kind of thing as well yeah for sure so moving on to endo mm-hmm. do we cover off everything pcos related yeah yeah um as- so endo is a little bit 
harder. Uh, and like we were saying, it does affect normally like up to 10% of like the population globally. So it is something to be um, aware of. Mm. Endo it's is not more inflammatory. It's not necessarily a uh, menstrual cycle dysfunction, but it can cause menstrual cycle dysfunction, correct? Like it's an inflammatory yeah. Disease. It's inflammatory and estrogen derivative, but it doesn't mean that. So the growth that happens um, doesn't necessarily have to. It could be localized. It could just be in um, the endometrial lining, but it can also spread further. So you know, people having to take out parts of their like digestive system, their bowels, um, because the growth has kind of escalated there. So it's more thank you would monitor and unfortunately when you get an internal ultrasound they can check your lining and see if it looks healthy and then they can look further to see if um it needs to be checked further um but unfortunately the only way they're actually going to see if there's a growth is with surgery um which can be costly as well so it's you can do an internal ultrasound to double check your lining and see if it looks healthy but again if the growth is internal you don't necessarily know um endo is more i would say it's inflammatory and estrogen uh, growth or estrogen based however it's it it's a little bit harder because everything is inflammatory so training is inflammatory um you know certain types of foods and this just means these people are more susceptible to having i guess dysregulation um so their training needs to be in alignment with whatever their symptoms are at that time it's not like it's not a broad statement like that person has endo is that is it playing up for lack of a better word at different times in their life that you have to alter your nutrition or alter your training or other like it's kind of like it's intuitive because it's internal but it's also taking uh into account say their biofeedback to know how everything's going at that time and stress management is highly important for people with endo yeah 100% so just to to clear that up if, if you guys don't know what endo is basically it's tissue that's similar to the tissue found in the endometrial lining and it it spreads it spreads to like well it can spread to other parts of the body so more so like the visceral organs to start with but some people can have it spreading to like their legs and things like that mm. yeah it's, it's it is an invasive kind of uh syndrome or like a set of symptoms and stuff that you get as well so um it, psychology wise like I do find that maybe a little bit more delicate as well uh people because they have so much internal pain and it's really hard to voice that like say if there's a lot of like pain during sex like it's it is a taboo topic to to speak about so it's being able to have those conversations with those clients as well and to look further like um I remember we were uh the Gold Coast seminar um and that girl was asking about her symptoms and um I think she was told PCOS and we're like oh that actually sounds more like endo maybe go and check that further so I guess it's having those conversations to be able to redirect people to specialists that can help yeah, 100%. So what are the main symptoms that people are going to experience? What what to look out for in your clients? Um, I like, I mean, it's a hard conversation if you're a male, um, but estrogen dominance also you would see in body patterning of like say uh, more body fat distribution in their lower body, um, pain during sex. Um, it could be that they feel they get inflamed quite easily um, or they normally complain of a lot more pain, I guess, than what mm. someone else like wouldn't. Um, and is that pain like their like, headaches does, as well? Sorry, I was going to say, does that pain flare up mainly around like during their bleed or can it be like around ovulation and other times of the cycle as well? It, it can be honestly at other times. And I also find the higher the stress, the worse the symptoms. Um, so depending on the person. So um, uh, 
I find as well, like the estrogen dominance is also an estrogen clearance issue. So sometimes it could be estrogen dominance in their luteal phase of their cycle is when they have estrogen clearance issues and you need to support that, um, mm -hmm. you know, using things like cruciferous vegetables or brassica kind of things. Um, there's obviously other supplements, but looking from a nutritional perspective, cruciferous vegetables do help. Um, but they could have like their heavier cycles and heavier flows. And uh, for one of my clients, it's more migraines around like her luteal mm -hmm. phase pregnancies, like excruciating migraines. Um, yeah. And it's definitely not an over-exaggeration. The pain they feel is real and it's worse than, you know, you or I just getting uh, a migraine or a headache, but it can also be like painful bowel movements, especially if the growth has like entered kind of the bowel as well. So mm -hmm. um pain during intercourse which again just being able to ask questions to your clients would help um but more estrogen dominance would be like yeah your headaches your body fat distribution being lower body uh heavier cycles which unfortunately also predisposes people with endo with more like iron deficiency and when anemia or iron deficiency occurs when there is low levels of iron we actually bleed more in our menstrual cycle but then if we bleed oh, no. more in our menstrual cycle yeah we get yeah. more anemia right so um even looking at their iron levels um, is something to look at as in their food intake and, and their sources and having like say vitamin C with their iron sources as well and monitoring and getting their bloods tested because heavier cycles does predispose someone yeah to that iron deficiency and unfortunately don't ask me why but the body then bleeds heavier uh, menstrual mm. cycle wise as well thanks body yeah it's I know bit... right? like way to fuck us up like yeah a bit contradictory um, <laughs> Yeah, and even just, I guess, the sources of iron that they're having, like a lot of the ones doctors give from what I've seen recently of patients is that it's either poorly absorbed or it promotes more constipation, um, which, again, if there's constipation in someone with endo and that growth is through into their bowels, that's even more pain. Like we're trying to decrease the amount of sufferance or increase the quality of life, not kind of um, make it worse. Yeah, because things like clots and stuff are quite common with endo. Yeah, and it, but it's also, also is anticoagulant, right? So our body produces an anticoagulant. If that doesn't go at the speed of what it needs, especially in a heavy bleed, say in endo, and say the size of the clot is above 10, 10 cent piece, like say it's a 20 cent piece, um, the anticoagulant can't keep up with the shedding of the lining. And that's what creates the clot. clot. Now, clots are normal in some people, uh, say mm -hmm. day one or day two, but you want it to be below a five or 10 cent piece. Whereas if it gets above that, it's just the mm -hmm. speed of the anticoagulant isn't released enough in the amount of what shedding is occurring or the amount of what bleeding is occurring. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so the common sites, I guess, endometriosis, just FYI, is like the ovaries, your fallopian tubes, the ligaments that actually support the uterus so you'll find that they maybe complain of a lot more pain um the space between the uterus and the rectum as well um mm -hmm. no anal uh the anterior <laughs> so looking between the uterus and the bladder um and the outer surface of the uterus or also the lining of the pelvic cavity so things that um say hip thrust if it's say quite a flare-up of endo um, and there's having to be a mount removed it is something that they monitor and they may need to go in for surgery regularly um mm. so think of someone hey say having a cesarean or someone having a, an appendectomy and the amount of recovery time that you would need for that you're always trying to prevent the higher stress and manage estrogen clearance to prevent having more growth and having surgery because that recovery time does limit your ability to perform well um, or to mm. build muscle um, or to feel as though, yeah, you're hitting goal strength targets as well. So, um, but yeah, the tissue can also be found in the intestines, in the rectum, in the bladder, in the vagina, in the cervix, the vulva, and yeah. um, in abdominal surgery scars as well. So 
Yeah, it is normally you can look genetic genetic markers, so looking at other women in their family um, or any issues there. But the pain and that can be in urination, that can be during sex, that can be in just in daily life. Um, yeah, it's just supporting those things, knowing that it is a slightly more sensitive condition that you're going to have to look after. Mm. And that was going to be my next question. So it does take something like 10 to 12 years for endo to actually be diagnosed correctly. Is that right? Um, yeah, as far as I know, like I think unfortunately there is, there isn't enough to be able to look and, and just diagnose someone. So unfortunately by the time I guess it's diagnosed, it has grown too, too much yeah. to actually, yeah, mm. to, to, to uh, avoid or um, not, not see. Um, and mm. I think as well, even from a taboo, kind of standpoint a lot of we normalize pain like if you look at porn for example if you're like oh that female is in pain right Mm. um and even I guess other areas is that women are meant to be like oh my period hurts my period's painful like it's heavy like that's just it's Mm. there's memes made about like painful periods and PMS and and all that kind of stuff and like just because it's normalized doesn't mean it's correct um Mm. so uh, I think sometimes it's lack of early diagnosis as well yeah so are there any other markers that we can look at like apart from the symptoms which you said like it's kind of already a little bit further along when you start seeing the symptoms are there any like other markers or any other things that predispose women to endometriosis like genetic I think you mentioned that but like blood markers or anything like that um, you can look for estrogen dominance or lack of estrogen clearance in uh, blood markers for sure, like especially post, uh, say, day one to three of their cycle. Um, yep. But for me, I actually normally speak with, so I work with a dietitian and naturopath and she has endo. So for me, she's someone that I would work with closely. So um, mm-hmm. I think having that reference as someone who is maybe a little bit more um, versed in that and obviously is a specialist in that area also helps so you could potentially get them to do blood work but then maybe mentor with somebody to go through that blood work with you knowing that they know potentially more and you don't want to do harm because like I said this is a more sensitive condition so it is something that mm. I would work with a specialist for yeah 100% awesome um, I think that's all I had in terms of endo PCOS hypothalamic amenorrhea those main kind of menstrual cycle dysfunctions that we've been talking about is there anything else you can think of that we should add uh or let our listeners know when it comes to this stuff Uh, I think yeah just having really good conversations with clients really thorough by feedback forms that they fill in um obviously more in depth than say what you would need for a male um like I track everything of my clients. They tell me what their poo looks like. They tell me what day of cycle it is, what the symptoms are. And we want to look for improvement. So you want to see that what you're doing nutritionally or training wise isn't worsening an underlying condition or is maybe helping or alleviating pain. Um, mm. I guess having those conversations, having a referral network and educating yourself. So even on those conditions for sure, but, you know, looking at different contraceptive types, what's the impact of that? And I posted a, a OCP kind of, it's everyone's choice. Like I'm pro education and pro choice in whatever someone wants to do, but it's knowing the ramifications of that. So if there is um, say B2, B6, B12, folate, zinc, magnesium, uh, potentially uh, selenium uh, deficiency from contraceptive type, then you want to look at, okay, well, what foods can promote that? Or say somebody's coming off the pills, like having those more nourishing foods and more of a nutrient dense diet to help 
that process of coming off the pill being as easy as possible. So to prevent post-pill acne or to prevent um, uh, any dysregulation like cycle-wise coming off the pill. So you want to promote an environment which is nourishing to ensure that one, their cycle comes back, two, they're not getting post-pill um, PCOS or they're not getting breakout acne. Um, having, I think people seem to think when I was on the pill that their skin was good. However, it's because they've suppressed everything and that sebum production has been suppressed and their thyroid mm. has been suppressed that your body's had to upregulate. So it's having to find a coping mechanism while you're having this chemical castration that the issues you're facing aren't from coming off the pill. They're coming from being on it for such a long time. So um, yeah, I guess just researching further, having a look at what the side effects are, having looked nutritionally, even if you're just the least amount of harm, you're looking at what deficiencies occur, what foods contain your B vitamins, what foods contain your zinc, your magnesium, um, your iodine, your selenium, your folate. And then you know that you're kind of ensuring health, even if it's their choice to be on contraception, but also give them the educational tools to research further as well. So give your clients the tools as well. Yeah, I, I was just about to say, like, if you take anything away from this, it's that education is key. So like, you know, your client might come to you and they might confide in you over some symptoms. If you don't know what those symptoms are or what they mean, it's not an excuse to just ignore it, right? Like, yes, you might go, okay, maybe you see someone who knows, but if you know, you can educate and find the right people to help support you, but then you can also have such an impact on things like their training and their nutrition, which, mm -hmm. you know, are the big the big factors, like the big underlying factors, like, you know, you've got your pyramid of importance, like take the low hanging fruit. If you can, you know, fix some of these issues or the majority of these issues with that, take that and then, you know, consult with someone, you know, when it comes to like your supplementation, your blood work, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. And you're not expected to do everything and you'll get more respect from your clients if you do refer out or you do allow them to look further because if if what if you referring on helps improve the quality of their life then they're going to value mm. you higher like no one expects you to be yeah we're slightly maybe underpaid psychologists but no one expects you to be there everything um mm. and I think it's a sign of caring when you when you can uh, reference out to other people and build that network of referrals yeah, a hundred percent. Cause like, I just, again, like I refer everything back to my experience with the physio world and you were talking about pain before. It's just like, there are so many underlying factors to that, like pain. And this is a complete other topic is so complex because mm. it's, it's not just a physical experience. It's an emotional experience as well. Like where we experience pain in the brain is very closely linked to our memory and our amygdala, which is like our, you know, emotional part of our brain so it does get complex when we do talk about pain you know I've had clients come to me before and they're in pain and you know some like another either whether it's a coach or a health practitioner might just if they don't understand the concept of pain then they focus on the physical but there's also like the whole psychological mental aspect of it as well and so you know really I guess being educated and like just awareness I think like awareness that there, there is help because there have been so many clients, whether they have chronic pain conditions or something like that, that just give up. Like you said, it's been normalized and it's like, well, there's nothing that can really be done. Like in most cases, there is almost always like things that you can do. And it might mm. be a like, it might be a freaking slog, 
like it might be months or years kind of working on it or it might even be the rest of your life like for management but there are things you can do so don't ever like let anyone just say like oh I have hormonal headaches like and this is normal or I have like excruciating pain around my cycle and this is normal like and leave that because Mm. yeah or if you have clients that are experiencing things like question everything Mm. just get get really curious get really aware get as educated as you can and then where you need to seek help yeah I think definitely that and like and it's such a rewarding as a coach like if you say you do have a client who has endo or they have pre metis kind of like really bad migraines to have them not have it they or say they had um sucker related uh, digestive issues and to have that improve or like I said my client last week who is over 12 weeks pregnant now and was told she was infertile with PCOS those are so rewarding to help improve now I didn't I didn't wave a magic wand I didn't do anything but I worked within my scope of what I could do nutritionally lifestyle based and um, for these guys I obviously did their blood work and their subs but also their training right is customized to them now all those facets when you move somebody's body or you feed them like that's such an influence because what we're eating indirectly makes up what our body is um and it could be something which causes more pain or something that decreases it and your training can be something that improves your health or decreases it so um i don't i think don't underestimate your power to influence even if you think it's something as simple as their nutrition or their training Mm. And it's also going to make your job a whole lot easier because your clients, and we'll speak about this next podcast, is like they're going to get results better, right? Because if they're skipping sessions because they're in so much pain or they've got a migraine, mm. you're missing out. Like you're you're not only like losing out on money, but you're also losing out on actually helping your client, um, helping them get better results, helping them just like thrive in life and having that impact on their life is like it's it makes everything worth it like if if you can help your client in that aspect then it's just like the most rewarding thing ever yeah and it's the same as like say if they have an injury like I have a client who um (laughs) she fell down stars and she's like you know damage some tendons as well so but like she's swimming like I'm getting her swimming in the ocean like you know like and she that pain management from um, also having endo as well is that that is actually probably one of the positive things it's not stressing her body she's keeping moving it's probably more of a parasympathetic state with like the cooling water and stuff like that as well as like if you lose one tire like say you get an injury you don't necessarily be like well nothing's going to help overall training is only say seven percent of five to seven percent of our overall total daily energy expenditure so you can still work with nutrition you can still work with um, lifestyle management protocols your sleep routines your day routines the same as any condition if you see it as just like a broken foot or the same as having say endo or pcos then you can still work around it but you just have to work in alignment with it yeah 100 percent. awesome conversation amy thank you so much for joining me again for answering all those questions guys if you have any questions for amy you can reach her at coach needham fit on instagram um if you are like yep i need this in my life sign up for the fsn nutrition course uh, you can find the link uh in our bio on at awpt underscore university We hope to see you there. We hope to change some lives. We hope to change the industry. We really think that this course is going to make an impact and we would love to have you along the journey with us um, in doing that because, you know, the only way that we're going to do this is 
if we can get as many of us as possible, like changing the lives of our clients. Like I can't do it alone. Amy can't do it alone. We need you. So yeah, we look forward to seeing you guys there for some really great conversations. Can't wait.